Hey, it's Gianni here. Well, this episode is one of the first ones we've had to record remotely. We aren't able to be in our studio anymore. It's due to those physical distancing requirements that are coming in to stop the spread of COVID-19 around Australia. We're working every week to try and replicate our full studio setup at home. So stick with us and enjoy this episode of Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of Pixel Sift, the show dedicated to indie games from Australia and around the world. My name is Fiona and joining me tonight is my co-host Daniel. Hey, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Fiona. How you doing? Yeah, pretty good. And our guest this week is Theo Kippen from Not Dead Design and he's here to tell us all about their game, Carter Quest. Thanks for joining us, Theo. Bye. But before that, we get into the game. What are we taking a look at, Daniel? So with the return of the long dormant Half-Life series this week with VR title Half-Life Alex, we want to know what video game series would you like to see return? All right, let's get into it. Australia's best video game podcast. Subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. So last week, Valve announced the return of the Half-Life series with VR title Half-Life Alex. And this comes as a surprise for two reasons, because not only is Valve returning to the world of Half-Life, but also the first time they've released a game since 2007. And uh, going through the brief history of the Half-Life series, in May of 2006, Valve announced a trilogy of episodic games that would continue Half-Life 2's story. And so if we look at a brief timeline about Half-Life, we have the first Half-Life coming out in 1998. Half-Life 2, six years later in 2004, which went on a little bit longer than Valve wanted to as far as development cycles. And after that, we've also got Half-Life 2 Episode 1 in 2006, and then in 2007 with Orange Box, Half-Life 2 Episode 2. And since then, 13 years later, we finally have Half-Life Alex. And so um, it's very interesting to think about. Uh, Theo, if you had to come back and develop an IP after a hiatus, how would you approach it? Oi. Uh... I think it's very dependent on the IP, right? So I feel as though with with Half-Life, like the ideal would have been just been like, boy, howdy, Gordon Freeman, you've been gone for a long time. You you keep doing this. Um, but it, it really depends on the IP and like what creative decisions you want to be making, right? Definitely. And I think uh, an important point to think about too is just uh, the zeitgeist at the time and collective consciousness mm. because some things stay true in people, you know, in people's hearts, especially like Half-Life, which has been teased, you know, the elusive Half-Life 3 for such a long time. I think that people remember and they still are hungry for that IP, that genre. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's all very interesting because I personally haven't played Half-Life Alex, but it looks like there's been a lot of leaps and bounds in terms of the gameplay. And also I'm hearing that there's story elements that Valve is starting to tie together to the old game so people still get like a sense of the plots being pushed forward even though when you look at the story of half-life alex takes five, uh, i think it's five years before half-life 2 and so there's that element to, to think about as well when you consider a company like valve and indie development inherently very very different as far as oh, yeah. development times and even just the length of, of stuff coming out because 
I know a couple of other developers that have been working on projects for over a decade at this point, and they're still going back to it constantly and refining it, you know? So it hasn't really taken a break so much as just continued to be worked on in such a long period of time. Yeah, like in the situation of like a game that's taken like 10 years, that screams to me like you're in development hell and you you actually need to stop working on it uh, and come back to it and make some decisions. Um, Whereas like Counter-Quest only took three years because I was like the first 18 months I was working entirely on my own and that's a lot of work to do. Um, at no point was was I ever like waffling on creative decisions. The decisions were essentially made. I just had to make the thing. Whereas you hear stories from like the development of Diablo 3 where they waffled on massive creative decisions throughout the entire process and same with like uh, Anthem. Yeah, just huge, huge problems. Whereas, like, Half-Life, oh, shit, I've forgotten his name, Alex's dad, like, he, he spoilers, he yeah. dies at the end of episode two, and like, what's going to happen? Dude, cliffhanger. Th- 13 yeah. years later, we still don't know what happens, and, like, it, it, like for Half-Life, <laughs> I got to the point where it's like, just tell me that it's cancelled. Tell me that it's cancelled mm. so I can move on. If you're just tuning into Pixel Sift, we're talking about the recent revival of the Half Life series and other game series that have been delayed over the years. Now, uh, an- another game that has had a reboot after a hiatus is Doom. So, Doom yeah. was rebooted back in 2016, and then the previous Doom title before that was released in 2012. And all that was was a HD remaster of Doom 3, which was released in 2005. But also a little side note, on pixelsift.com.au, you can actually find a recent interview that Daniel did with Mick Gordon, who's the composer of Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal. And one thing he said was that the reboot was combining the ingredients of what made the original special in a modern context. So, Theo, why do you think that older IPs are making a comeback? Do you reckon it's because they're more a bit more financially secure or there's just better technology? Um. I think it's a bit of a combination of both, but also like oftentimes with those older IPs, there is often a nugget of creative goal that makes those IPs great. And like in the case of Doom, they're like, what is the core of what made like the original Doom games so beloved? And like, Personally, I I didn't hate Doom 3 as much as a lot of other people did, but I will be the first to admit that, like, it was a complete thematic break from Doom 1 and 2, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they were like, okay, well, what's that creative nugget, that core of that idea? Um, Personally, I think if you take that nugget and you work with it um, and try to keep what is there but let it take you in new and interesting directions. I think that's where it is the most interesting. And that's why I think like the 2016 Doom Reaper was so good. Um, whereas, uh, what's an example of one which like fell short? Oh, it's not an official reboot, but it's basically a reboot, like Mighty Number no. 9, where it's like, this is a Mega Man game and mm-hmm. we're just going to keep the original idea without analyzing some of its problems or reinventing its core goodness for a new world. 
Um, it was just, let's just make a substandard Mega Man game and slap the guy's name on it. I forget his name. <laughs> but... It's always interesting to consider, though, as uh, games aren't just made in a vacuum and it's very much a product of its time. Oh, yeah. And so there's obviously things that reflect in it. And I think that uh, what you were saying with Doom, having that core sort of gameplay loop and what makes it great, but then revitalizing it in a modern context, because not only has obviously graphics have gotten better and things like that, but game design, game, the elements of it and how to flow in different levels and stuff, that's all been expanded too. And yeah. so Theo, my question, my next question is uh, for you personally, what game series would you like to see uh, be brought back? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, like it's hard because like a lot of the games this series that I really, really like went in on as a kid uh, were Nintendo games. And so they kind of never went away. Uh, <laughs> so like Pokemon wouldn't know what it's like not to have that around. It's, it's, it's always there. Um, oh boy, what would I like to bring back from the dead? Uh, goodness, I don't know. This is too many. There's so many games out there that could potentially be brought back, you know? So, yeah. But yeah, with uh, with Nintendo specifically, because you said like it's never really gone away, you know? But is there any game, let's just say, in earlier on in the series that you would like to see as a remaster or like a reboot sort of thing? I would like it if they. Yeah, like the main one I keep thinking about is like Pokemon, right? And like, I don't know if about a remaster, but. I would like them to just completely revamp how they do the stories. What I wish they would do is just like, okay, let's get rid of like the one singular long narrative structure. Let's just break that up into lots and lots of little episodic stories, which Mm. I think would work a lot better because they don't have to like have one continuous narrative thread. They just have to have loose themes that connect all these little chunks then they could do it something which is much closer to the uh, actual Pokemon show where, like, this week Ash has run into a group of Beedrill and he's going to save the not Beedrill from being stung by the Beedrill and stuff like that, right? Which is closer to, like, the the actual TV show, right? Um, Because as a kid, I remember being like, the games are very different from the TV show. Um, That's where I'd like to make that. That's how I would reboot Pokemon if it went away for more than three seconds. Now, we also asked that question to you on different social medias, and we did actually get some responses of what series that you would like to return. On Instagram, we had the happy little skeleton saying resistance and then Samurai with Star Wars Pod Racing, which I'm very excited is having just a remaster on Switch coming out sometime eventually. On Pixelsift Discord, we had L. Logical with Titanfall and the War for Cybertron series. We had quite a few different responses. Thank you, everyone, for replying. It was awesome to see what games you wanted to come back. But I think that's a good place to end the topic here. Pixel Sift! It's not Pixel Sift. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift! So today we're joined by Theo Kippen from Not Dead Design, and he's joining us this evening to talk all about their new game called CarnaQuest. So just to begin with, for those who may not know, could you tell us what is CarnaQuest? Uh, so CarnaQuest is a kawaii kind of match-em-up, but it, it plays, plays a bit like Domino's Cross with a Match 3 game, but it also teaches you how to read Japanese. 
Um, yeah, so it's a puzzle game, but at its core, it just incidentally is educational. So what was the inspiration behind Carter Quest? Because that's a really cool idea of making it like educational with teaching different hiragana and katakana as well. Uh, basically, I was working a, I was working sometimes as a Japanese tutor for a kid in year seven, uh, and I was also working a miserable telephone sales job. And while I was on my telephone sales job, I was like, how do I get this kid to actually study and use flashcards? Because flashcards are kind of your best way to learn your hiragana and your katakana. And so I initially came up with this idea of like, oh, why don't I, um, create a game where like the hiragana are the game pieces and they're connecting up by their sound like the original like the first prototype i did with myself just as a paper prototype uh was actually a sort of area control strategy game kind of like chess or go um but after like playing sitting down with myself and playing which is like there's so much going on on the board and like you can't discern any of like the strategy because there's too much information it'd be impossible for someone who didn't know the letters to play this uh so i pared it down into like a puzzle game so in the context of kind quest um there's over 300 puzzles yeah. what's the process of creating just one level and especially as refining it down from the strategy game as you said into something a little bit more manageable for players uh well like the puzzles these days like these days like there's absolutely nothing resembling how the gameplay would have been with the strategy game. Um, usually what I will do is it depends on what level I'm making, if that makes any sense. So generally the structure of each world is, okay, new mechanic is introduced in. Uh, we'll give you one to six to eight levels of just just the new mechanic for you to figure out get to grips with um and then after those couple of introductory levels i will start adding in some of the old mechanics in and usually it's just one old mechanic and the new mechanic and seeing how they interact um and usually what i'll try to do is i'll sort of follow a pretty standard design principle from uh some of the super mario games where it's like test out the concept here's the concept Here's the concept again, but a little bit more tricky. And then here's the th concept a third or fourth time, but we're going to put it on its head and make you rethink how you behave with this interaction. So a good example of that would be in like World 4 when you have the ice cunner, which are kind of which keep moving. They just keep moving until they can't make a valid move. Uh, and the one-way cunner, which can only move in one direction. So they'll be like the first time you see those two kind of correct, interacting with each other, I force you to be like oh okay you're using the one-way cunner to stop the ice cunner's movement and get them into position and over the course of the next several levels i add to that and add more complexity to that and get you to rethink how you're interacting with those things definitely with the nature of the puzzle game too it's that uh when mitch and i both played it at the start we were just kind of moving tiles everywhere and just seeing where it would go but it definitely rewards you for actually understanding what is going on and uh, a thing that i i liked a mechanic was the mystery kana and so the one that had like a little question mark and you had to pair it and you had to get it right otherwise it would count towards your move set yeah. and so i guess what i'm trying to say is how do you balance puzzle versus language mechanics and there is there a fine line there that you're trying to to cross uh it's an incredibly fine line you have no <laughs> idea um so the way in which 
to get that line that you want to have happen, you do need to make some you do need to make some sacrifices. Um, and the first thing you need to do is you need to sacrifice the amount of content that you're teaching. So for the rule set that I had, which was like matching sounds between letters, I basically had to say, sorry, words, you're not going to work within this rule set. Sorry, kanji, you're not going to work within this rule set. Sorry, grandma, you're definitely not going to work within this rule set. Get out. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing you have to do. So you kind of have to, maybe if like I had a bajillion dollar budget, I could have what is essentially kind of quest as like a mini game for a large game. But, you know, that's still like one person's three-year job just making the mini game for a large game, right? So that's the first thing you need to do. You need to pare down what you're actually trying to teach with the content. Secondly, with the content that you do keep, you have to make the content the means of how you achieve your goal, not the end. So the what I mean by that is in Duolingo, for example, the end the thing you're trying to get is the answer and the answer is the knowledge right so if i were to write the right character here and mm. it appears on your screen and you're you're all like okay what what is this kind of it's both the knowledge is both the means to the solution of this level and the end it's your goal whereas kind of quest or where what i think are the most interesting educational games so i think carmen san diego the where in the world is carmen san diego is mm -hmm. one which does this as well is the knowledge of the world in carmen san diego is not the end goal the end goal is to capture carmen san diego it's just that knowledge of the world is the means in which you capture her and it gives you the information to proceed through the game uh, kind of Chris tries to do that in the same way. So, like, if at any point you don't know what a kana is, you just double tap it any time, and it gives it to you. There's no punishment. It's like here it is. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, and then the final step and the hardest one is making sure that the mechanics that you've built around your content, so that they are the means, not the end, are good. And that can be tough and tricky, especially when you've with languages where things are not necessarily regular, you've got weird irregularities. So most letters in the Japanese alphabet, they, uh, they've got a consonant followed by a vowel, but there's like a handful that just behave a little differently. And I had to like, no, oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to figure a way to make this work. So Thanks for watching Pixel Sift. If you're just joining on, we're talking to Theo Kippen from Not Dead Design about their game Carnaquest. And Theo, one thing, when you look at the game straight away, you can already tell the art style and the love and care that was put into it. Uh, could you tell us more about how that was developed and also with the music? Uh, yeah, so visually, the, a lot of the inspiration visually from the game came from my time living in Japan. So... I lived in a small town called Asago, Wadeyama uh, Asagoshi, um, which had nothing in it, but had very, very beautiful mountains. And something which I really loved about Japan is there's a lot of, there's a sense of age and wear to 
everything. And I don't mean like everything feels worn down and dilapidated. I mean, like every, like just your average building feels as though it has an amount of history or time. And that's just not something you get in Australia. I don't know. I don't know how the best way of explaining it, but that's. There's a lot of history wherever you go in Japan. Like even the smallest thing you can tell it's like, it's got some story to it. Yeah. Um, And so there was a very sense of like things are worn, but not worn down. I I don't know how to explain that. So everything feels kind of old, but also new and it's in a weird contradictory fashion. So I wanted to capture that, but also, especially when you see games that are about Japan, especially from Western developers, they tend to fall into like two broad visual camps. You have like samurai ninja, like calligraphy everywhere type aesthetic. Um, and then uh, hi everyone, the, 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 this game has anime, anime boob visuals. And then the final sort of visual ingredient was adding in the little faces on the kana, which was uh, a riff on sort of Japanese mascot characters, because every town ha- and every school has its own mascot character. And the final thing was like with the uh, music was I wanted to sort of capture that sort of sense of Japanese musical styles. So uh, it had to be have chiptune elements to match the visuals, uh, the pixel art. And But I also wanted to show you okay, some of like Japanese musical styles that you just don't hear. So I wanted to have J-pop in there and sort of modern Japanese game music in there, but I also wanted to have a style called Enka, which is a post-war Japanese pop music. Um, if you've ever heard the song Sukiyaki, is the Western name, the Japanese name is Uemute Aruko. Uh, that's probably the most famous example of Enka. It's the only Japanese song to ever get number one on the American charts. Oh, cool. Um, but it's very sort of like traditional Japanese vocals, but with some weird jazz notes, and it, it's it's a trip. Um, <laughs> You know Enka when you're hearing Enka. Mm. <laughs> um, and a lot of, I tried to get a lot of the earlier, I, I didn't compose the music, I asked my composers to do this, but I asked them to try to capture that sort of sense of early Japanese music. Um, and the other element was it had to be pretty, a lot of the music had to be pretty calming and chill because if the music drew too much attention to itself, then the player would spend more time focusing on the music and not the puzzles. And when the puzzle is actually quite mentally involved, you can't bear that brain space to the music. Um, so yeah, I had one composer who was specialized in doing jazz sort of sounds and surprisingly a large amount of jazz in Japan. Uh, and he was very good at doing like very chill, very relaxed beats. And the other composer, she was, uh, she was the only person out of all the applicants who had any understanding about Japanese song progression. Uh, it turns out she was, she grew up in Japan. So funny that, <laughs> um, yeah. And then I got to serendipitously say no to anyone who had put a gong at any of their music that they sent me. <laughs> 
Now, the game has been out for a few weeks. So what has the reception been like for players? Um, the players who've played it uh, liked it a fair bit. Um, the overall, like, sales figures could have been better. Um, but the people who played it seemed to like it. That You know, um, the reviews we got back from game reviewers was pretty dang positive. Like, our worst review was a 7 out of 10 and our best one was a 9 out of 10. So... Uh, I'm oh, not going to awesome. complain there. My, I, my, my main regret is like on the marketing side. I think I could have done a much better job of selling the game on that front. But um, look, I think people will, the people who get it and play it, they seem to be getting a fair amount of it out of it and they're enjoying it. So that's all that matters. So I had a lot of fun playing it um, with Mitch and I felt like by the end I'd learned a whole bunch that I didn't going into it. And I think that's, I mean, that's the whole point of the game. So it's effective on that front. I hope that it inspires like one or two people to stick with their Japanese afterwards and do some proper classes. And like one of like the weirder design decisions that I made was um, I wanted the game to behave a bit like your, like the best primary school teacher you've ever had. Um, so like, patient doesn't punish you for not knowing things makes learning fun but ultimately with the best primary school teacher you ever had you leave them behind um because you need to go on and learn new things mm. and unfortunately kind of quest like it's hiragana and katakana it's the very first step for learning japanese and mm. i don't want players spending years on kind of quest i want them to like spend a good month playing through the levels and then they played the levels, it's time to move on to learning new things in Japanese. So that was sort of a weird design decision that I made. That I don't know if anyone noticed that it was a conscious choice. Just thinking on terms of scale, it took me three years with by myself and then my programmer, Ruben, who was in on your stream a few weeks back, um, to make this game. And we were just teaching Hiragana and Karakana, so that's 92 characters in total let's say we were to do kanji let's say we just do the first 500 kanji because that's the amount of kanji you need to do vc units in australia that's still four times the amount of content that we'd have to do for kanji and what's more for kanji we'd have to do a completely different rule set because kanji is not hiragana those two things don't gel i'd have to make a completely new rule set for that game and the same would go for learning vocabulary or grammar um, so while I do have ideas for mechanics for all those content, those different chunks of Japanese content, um, the viability of making it is unlikely. Well, that's all about what we have time for today. But thank you so much, Theo, for joining us and telling us all about CarnaQuest. No worries. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for watching or listening to our episode 143 of Pixels. This episode has been hosted by myself and Daniel. Thanks for joining me tonight, Daniel. Thanks, Fiona. So Pixel Civ is produced by Scott Quigg, Sarah Ireland, myself, Mitchell Lowe, Daniel Ang, and Gianni Giovanni is our executive producer. So as always, we'll be sticking links to the topics we talked about in the show notes on our website, which is at www.pixelsif.com.au. And, you know, while you're there, you can also come and join us on Discord. We'd love to have you. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can share your creative work, talk about topics and games and anything else. So pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And you know what? If you like what we do, can we please ask you for a favor? 
We need your help to share the show. So please tell a friend, subscribe your brothers and sisters, start someone's journey into podcasts because we know that getting started is tricky, but once you're in, you're going to love it too much to leave. So our next episode will be recorded live on twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift on Thursday, the 16th of April at 8.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So you can come and join us and be part of the episode. But next week on Thursday, 9th of April, it will be Pixel Sift Players where we play one of the many indie games that feature on our show. That's all for week this week. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Hi, Pixel Sift listeners. My name's Ben. I'm one of the hosts and the dungeon master of How to Win Loot and Influence Dragons. It's a Dungeons and Dragons actual play comedy slash storytelling podcast. That basically means I sit around with some of my best friends, these idiots, and I am your first mate, Jackson Usid, Thomas Horatio Hornblower Owen. Whoa. Grace the Kraken Chapo. <laughs> and we play Dungeons and Dragons together. Everybody roll initiative. We're going in here. Mine's 11. 19. That's a two! <laughs> <laughs> Telling a collaborative fantasy story whilst trying to make each other, and you, laugh. I feel like we should include that and just see if we get away with it. Oh, I'm definitely going to include that. <laughs> <laughs> we explore a world known as Carthus, and we try and balance the rules-heavy D&D actual play stuff with storytelling, comedy, and fun. If you're into nerdy stuff, or if you're just into good friends hanging out, you'll probably like it. We're quite close to the end of our current story, Story, and it is one continuous narrative, so if you're looking for a place to jump in, I'd recommend listening to Chapter Zero at the very start of the feed, which gives you a bit of background and some ideas for places to start with the show. That's How to Win Loot and Influence Dragons from the Curio Network. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at curionetwork.com.